The final season of Power Book 2, Ghost, begins. And for Tariq St. Patrick, it's the moment of truth. In the wake of being betrayed, pushed out of the drug game, and almost killed, Tariq is out for revenge. Will he prove to be like his father and do whatever is to be done to protect his family and his future? Or is he his own man? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now only on Stars and the Stars app. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more, connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and an Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Limited time offer requires 0% APR, 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This is Cut To It with Steve Smith Sr., a production of The Black Effect and iHeartRadio. <laughs> I'm Steve Smith Sr. And I'm Gerard Littlejohn. And this is Cut To It. Cut to it, cut to it, let's get down to it, cut to it. We ask the questions you always want to know, but no one ever asks. Let's cut to it. If you ain't heard about it, then we're about to let you know. It's on. Coming up on the Cut to It podcast, we've got Lorenzo Neal, a four-time Pro Bowler, an All-Pro, a member of the 2000s NFL All-Decade team, but more importantly, just a fountain of wisdom. Lorenzo Neal on the Cut to It podcast. A guy you blocked for, too, gave us a great story when we asked (laughs) this. Um, Is where you from in a place you call your hometown? The more, the L, the move, the big L town, Lamore, California, where I'm from. So if you look at California, you guys know how long it is, you know, one of the longest states to travel to. California, we're in the Central Valley, so we're dead smack in the middle. We're 300 miles south going down to L.A. Mm -hmm. We're 300 miles north going up to the Bay, San Francisco. So we're in the middle. And so so Fresno, Bakersfield, Visaya, Visaya, Bakersfield, all those towns, those little little towns, by the way, related to Tommy Smith, remember the 64 Olympics up there yeah. when he, you know, so he's from Lamore, Steve Perry, just a long, just a small town boy living in a lonely world. He's, you know, you know, James, your journey, he's Lamore too, Steve Perry. So small town, but it's just a country, a lot of ag farmland around, you know, so, but we are centrally in the Central Valley. So that's why they call it the Central Valley. We're the raising capital of the world. We produce over $75 billion a year in, in ag and in, in food. We feed the majority of the world. Central Valley is lo- uh, so rich in farmland. So that's where it's at. So 300 miles south, you go to LA. 300 miles north, you go to San Francisco. So we're kind of, we're dead smack in the middle. 
growing up there, how did that shape your view on the world today? Well, I, I think that, you know what, it, it, you were blind a little bit, but you were also, it, it made you see things differently because you're a young man growing up in a town like that, lots of Portuguese, a lot of a majority Portuguese and, you know, and, and white, and, you know, blacks were kind of a, not necessarily a majority. A lot of blacks came from, you know, the South and, and moved to uh, Lamore, the Central Valley, because, you know, in the, in the 60s and 50s, a lot of the people left, you know, as far as getting out of the the you know Texas and stuff so a lot of them came out to California my dad and grandma my grandmother was named Viola and Oliver was my grandfather and they came from Texas on the back of a truck my dad and his six brothers and my aunt Bernice and so it was a guy Cunny Man they called him Cunny Man and he would drive people and families uh, out to California and they took them out to the island district and out in the island district it was sort of like a a not a plantation but a a, a, a a community almost like yeah, it's, it's, yes absolutely yeah absolutely where all the blacks lived on on the land and they shared and they w worked on different forms and chopped cotton picked cotton and everyone says chop cotton you don't chop cotton what you do is you chop the weed so i grew up and we had we had 50 acres and we still have it now i'm developing that now residential but so i had to i had to chop cotton growing up so you, you chop the weeds that are around the cotton so you got to get a hoe and you go down the rows and you just you hold the weeds from around the cotton um, so for it won't, won't strike before it won't strangle the cotton for it to grow. So those are some of the things. And then my grandparents, my dad, my mom, they also, we had to pick cotton. So you pick the cotton, you make sure pick it and you, the sacks that you pick, you weighed them and you got paid for that. I didn't pick cotton, but you know, my, my thing was, you know, I did chop, you know, the weeds from around it, but, uh, we had a cotton picker, so we didn't have to do that with my grandparents or my mom and dad had to do. So those kind of things kind of, they kind of molded me and kind of you asked, you know, what did it bring for me? It, it taught me how to work. It taught me about hard work. I still go out and cut grass. I, you know, I have rental properties in Lemoore. I got a hammer and nail like in sheetrock. I try to tell my kids, I said, look, when dad gone, was dad's gone, that's why I try to get you guys to come out here and work because you need to know, well, dad, we can hire someone. I said, yeah, but if you got a, a, a room and you got a, you know, a 10 by 10 by 10 room, you know, that's four, how many, you know, where's the stud? You got your two by fours every 16 or every 12 inches. So I can tell you, even though you don't have to be going out, going out and doing the work, but at least I want you guys to know how many, how many two by fours you need to buy. So if you learn that stuff now, no one can't beat you. So those, those are the certain things that really, really, that I gravitated toward that kind of, you know, still keep me and keeps me molded who I am. My, my grandmother, like I said, she was 97 when she died. And I remember my senior year, I was uh, the league player of the year. I was the central section player of the year. I was the Valley player, the athlete of the year. And I was Northern California athlete of the year. And I was California Athlete of the Year. And Janet Evans says Lorenzo's the king and Janet's the queen. Janet Evans, who won the Olympics. And I beat out Michael Kim, who was a tennis player um, for Athlete of the Year, Curtis Conway, all the greats. And I remember sitting with my grandmother and she said, come here, boy. Uh, she said, sit down. I said, oh, grandma. She's like, she was wanting to sit and talk to me. She had an old beat up station wagon. I said, don't worry, I'm not going to give you the station wagon. I said, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so she sat down. You know what, son? She goes, you can do all those things. She goes, you know what? You all these athletes all these you know accolades you're getting and people are bragging about you she said but let me tell you something she said i came from fort worth texas i had your own um, i was i was picking cotton as she said she was a foreman over 20 people 
that she was, you know, you still, she was picking cotton, but she was forming over 20 people. She was making sure they picked and did the things that they needed to do. She said, I was pregnant with your uncle Joe. I went into labor on Wednesday. I went worked. Thursday, I had your uncle. Friday, I went back to work. And I said, Grandma, why don't you just take the weekend off? You're already going to be off for the weekend. And you just could have took Friday and then been off and go back Monday. She said, son, she goes, I'll tell you this. Never take a vacation when the boss is around. She, I said, why not? She said, they'll realize how much they don't need you. And at that time, I really didn't know I was a senior in high school. But, you know, all those times, and she, I was, she even got to see me play in the pros. She lived a, a great life. But all that time, I didn't know until, you know, I got in college and then high school, the pros. She was telling me, son, you could be as good, you could be the best. But if you take a vacation when the boss is around, they'll realize they don't need you. Someone else is going to take your prize. Someone else is just as hungry. Someone else wants to be that supervisor. Someone else wants to be that supervisor over 20. Someone else wants to be that starting fullback. Someone else wants your job. So never take a vacation when the boss is around because they'll realize how much they don't need you. And those are the things that I still tell my kids. Those are the things that I tell people when I go out and talk to them. Those are so important for not just not just not just in sports, but just in life in general. It's funny is when hearing you say all of this with the same enthusiasm as how you uh, taught a lot of players uh, while you while you were on teams with the Cincinnati uh, Bengals, with the obviously on that um, Hall of Fame career with Ladanian Thomason and, and just what you did and meeting a guy named Steve Smith uh, before he became senior at the Pro Bowl. Um, just all of that stuff that you, you've taught so many players that have so many high um, admirations for you. Uh, man, I appreciate it. My thing, Steve, and you know it, man, you were that guy that everyone in the league, they knew. Whether, you know, watching you play and the attitude in which you went about it, and you demanded respect. And it wasn't, you didn't have to talk about it. They just knew Steve was going to be playing. I don't care. They knew that they were going to go into the meeting. They don't care how big, how small, whatever. They knew that they had the game plan for you. You can't teach that. That's something that you have inside you. That's something that's been instilled. That's just your heart. That's just your termination. No size or nothing determines who you are. That doesn't define you. Steve is, a, you know, we're talking about me and I know me and you, that's why we have a kinder spirit. We love each other, love each other's family. But the biggest thing, man, is like, it doesn't matter. It can be the biggest dude in the world. Steve, you ain't backing down. I, even if they whooped your ass, that's just not who you are. <laughs> no, I, I'm being, you know, you know that, bro. That's just, but a lot of people, we pit bulls and a lot of people don't have that. They, they, they don't have that it factor is you, you gotta you gotta kill this and that's what makes that's the difference between good and great yeah. that's the difference that separated you and that's the difference that separated you that you can wait okay you no way not on my watch no way you might beat me you might win the game but you ain't beating steve that that's just how you're built you wasn't beating you you might win the team your team might have lost you might your team might have struggled but something inside of you that you're gonna say, I'm whooping your ass today. You ain't, you might, you might, you guys might win, but I'm gonna tell you right now, y'all gonna know that I'm here. You would block, you would hit guys, you would, it didn't matter what your job was. That's what made you great, bro. That's what made you great. I don't know what to say. I was say, how, how, do, how do you feel uh, hearing that from Lorenzo? It's hard to digest, to be honest. Why? I, that's just, it allows you. I I believe one of the reasons why I have such a hard time hearing compliments, especially from people I admire or I respect or I 
uh, I really value, uh, including you and a lot of, you know, people on our, our production team that we work with is because it allows me to take my guard down. Mm-hmm. And I don't like taking my guard down because if I take my guard down, the fear of, uh, of more of uh, being emotionally hurt because of I know, you know, you could physically hurt me and okay, I, you know, I have a high threshold of pain. I've, you know, I've been through some things. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, that, that's hard to get through. Yeah. Right. You, you've seen people who have dealt with things emotionally as children and you can, you can talk to someone long enough. You realize, man, their childhood screwed them up. I, I don't want to be that. Right. I, I think some of my childhood already wounded me. Sure. And so that's why I, you know, is it, it has taken a lot of years to create a smile for me alone for a long time, it was easier to frown, yeah. you know, cause if you keep yourself close guarded, right. If you look like you're unapproachable, then people won't approach you. Exactly. And if people don't approach you, you don't have to talk. So yeah. it just goes down a whole thing. And so I, you know, really that isolation, yeah. right. Um, I, I, for a long time, isolation was where I thrived, right. It's where I felt comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, and, 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 and Steve with that, with that, you know, even though you were loved, then you find it hard to really submit or to be just, okay, I'm a bear, I'm a bear who I am, because you're used to being on this island. Mm-hmm. And people might say they can help you, they might tell you they love you and all those different things, but it's just it's 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 a it's a place that you just like you 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 want to believe it, but anytime yeah. things happen, if you don't have you, yeah. It, it, it's, 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 like, it's, what like, it's like a mental prison almost. Your no, no, it's not. It's not? not. It's not a mental prison. What's the prison is having a friendship with someone that it isn't really a true friendship. That's right. because because then what are you left with? You're left. Right. You're left sitting there picking up your own emotional pieces, going, see, and you start to digest or you start to piece together. Well, they don't want to really be my friend. It, you don't say they aren't my friend or the relationship wasn't good because they are someone who's wounded or didn't know this or that it's, well, was it, I said this, that, that, that made them feel this way or did, did I do this? And, and some of it, so you start to figure out and then you start putting the piece together. So you having a conversation with yourself who ultimately says I did something wrong. That's why it didn't work out. So if, if you don't have that, then you're safe. So it's not, it's not that prison that, you know, you, you're feeling safe is people who don't run would not get this. There's a place where it's called no man's land, where the slow runners are where they are. Then the fast runners are where they are. If you're stuck in the middle. So if you, if you hang with the slow people, yeah. right. Y- y'all go at the pace that's comfortable for mm-hmm. you guys. But if you're, if you're a slow person trying to run with a fast pace, yeah. got you. And you can't keep up. Your body going to run out of gas. Your mind say, yeah. your, your mind's telling you, yeah, but your <laughs> legs. Both y'all in these, in these, in these Your runs. legs are saying no, right? Your legs say, nope, that lactic acid buildup. You start heavy breathing. And so you start to back up. You're in the middle. You're in between the fast people, but you're you're not fast enough to be for the with fast the, people. For the, uh, for the, for the six-minute mile pace. 
But, but you're faster than, than you're faster than a 15 minute mile pace. Yeah. So you're stuck in the middle. So you have to maintain, mm -hmm. chase, but keep off the slow yeah. people. Yeah. So you're you're in the middle, and you're dolo. Mm. Mm. And that if you are not prepared and ready to run a marathon by yourself, come on, you it's a struggle. I mean, it is a struggle, and some people, and I'm not saying this in in a negative way. I'm just I'm just being honest. I'm throwing it out there. This is where some people commit suicide. This is where some people uh, slit their wrists. This is where some people do not know how. You've been real. Deal You're with preaching. some of what's going on. And there have been times, pretty much a lot of my career, I would say about seven, probably the first, probably the first eight or nine years, man, I was okay with being no man's land. Mm. I preferred being in no man's land because you couldn't tell me I was too slow. And hell, I knew I couldn't I run fast. So wow. I was okay with being in no man's land because it gave me a place there was, I was my judge, mm. jury, mm. and executioner. And I was happy with it because some nights I went to bed, terrible day. I was okay with it. I'd just go to sleep, yeah. wake up, try again. I trusted no one mm. to really give me anything that was really beneficial. And that's why Michael Jackson said it best. Stuck in the middle, you got to get over. Can't get under. Hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Y'all like Casey and JoJo all of a sudden hey. with all the singing. But it's just, you know, and that's where it is. And and I think that no man's land is a, is a really good place, but it is a very dangerous place without some some good counseling, without some some yeah. good mentorship, without some people that really can love on you, and you also can love on them back. Like Zoe is one of those guys. You know, when the Super Bowl happens, um, when some big event that requires us former players or current players to get around each other, we see each other. That's He's one of those guys where I'm okay if he's a slow runner or a fast-paced runner. I'm okay with sprinting with him mm. because he just lifts you up. He, 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 You see someone, it's like, it's like going to an event or you the new employee at a huge corporation yeah. and you go into the cafeteria and you see that one person you know and you are beelining yeah, to them. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm, I'm right. comfortable with them. Yes, yeah, but right. it's not comfortable because I feel safe. It's comfortable because of who he is yes. or who she is. And Zoe's one, Lorenzo's one of those, those guys, he texts, um, you ask and they say, well, it's for Lorenzo. I've been on the show a few times and there's some days I'm like, it's West Coast. Right, I like doing mathematics today, you know. But it's like, oh, it's, oh, it's Lorenzo. Oh, yeah, yeah that big dog, absolutely. And, and that's what that's who he is. That yeah. he like, he oozes the confidence of true friendship. Wow, Con really, like me and your bond. Yeah. I you get on my nerves, I get on your nerves. But ultimately, you're one of my closest friends. Yeah. And I, I, wow. I would lose, if I would lose you and our friendship, it would take me a long time to get over. I could buy some friends, yeah. but bro, you ain't, you, you're not one of those friends that, that's, I, I don't have the amount of money in my bank account hmm. because of what you bring. Wow. You know?
I appreciate wow. that. I appreciate that. Well, man, that's that's a that's that's heavy. But even with that, Lorenzo, how how do you how, how did you land at that place that Steve is describing of being, for lack of a better word, being an OG, being the person that looks out for other people? I, you know what? A lot of it's I, I, like Steve. We've we've been hurt. We've been we, but you still love people. And for me, my dad, he was just my dad. You know, was a pastor, and you know, he, he passed like five years ago, and. Uh, he was a good man. Was he perfect? No. And I think that, you know, growing up, sometimes, you know, being a, you know, son of a preacher, you, you stray and I'm a lie. I'm a cheat. I'm a, I'm, you name it. I'm, I'm that, I'm that person. And, and then some, I, I thought I have to, like, like Steve talked about, we, you know, have, have I'm not saying to, speaking for Steve, but I'll speak for me. Have we, have I thought about, did I get a gun and put it, pull it out and say, I'm going to commit suicide? No. Have we all thought of, have we thought about it? Have we thought about relationships, all those different things? Yes. I think that if you, people that say that they haven't, I think they're not, they're lying to themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we are, we are humans. We are human beings. And, and those nature and those things that we're talking about, love and respect and knowing who one another is. My dad told me a couple of things. And one of them that just stuck out with me and he said, he said, son, you know, I got out of college running wild, gotten pros, doing my thing. And he said, son, he goes, you got to slow down. And he just, but he knew, but he, he talked to me in a way. He said, son, he said, look, if you hang out with four people that make a dollar, he <laughs> says, son, pretty soon there'll be five. And I, wow. And you just, I mean, and, and, it's, and it's your timing. So when you're asking, was always good to people? Yeah. Only time I was crazy or an ass is when I was drunk. But as far as just being a good person, it, I was always a good person. Now, I've done some bad things, and we all have. And that's why, for me, I had to learn how to forgive. Mm -hmm. Forgive, forget, you know, because we can do other people, you know, loan money and do things and be there. But then sometimes we do all these things because we're not willing to forgive, uh, forgive ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what I had uh, recently, and that's why, you know, I, you know, I, I, I depend more on a higher power and, you know, I get up and try to pray more. I get up and try to do things more. Not that I'm some Bible thumper, you know, I still understand it because what happens is we have been taught a lot of black churches and a lot of black that, Hey, you got to do this. You got to get more money. You got to tithe. You got to, you got to go, you know what? You got to go do this. You got to do this. No. In Exodus, Jesus said, he said, you know, God, he said, I'm the God who brought the children of Israel for 40. I brought you out of Egypt. He says, so serve me. See, so many people in churches, and I think that's what we that's why people turn from God. They act like he's a genie in a bottle and they rub the blunt. Oh, I need a new car. Oh God, I need a new house. Oh, I need this, I need that. And it's, but they're not, they're not, that's not what he that's not what he came for. He came to show us just how to live, how to treat people, how to be good to people. That's what and, and, and that's but we don't want to do that because that's not our nature. Our nature is to lie, to cheat, to steal, to do those things because. That's what he said. Don't give any man no praise. So until you ask me, so until recently, learning just to forgive and learning that, hey, look, I'm okay. You know what? God forgave me. Because because we go through, we might sin, we might do those things, and we feel so, we feel so disconnected because of things that we've done in our past, or you know, we did something or we felt a certain way, we said some things, we did something we hated, we talked about someone, we did things that we didn't speak life. And it's like you feel so guilty, but you know what? It's okay. That's why it's only one good, and that's God. We got to stop, you know, we got to stop always holding ourselves and looking at ourselves and judging ourselves. And because you get to that point, sometimes you're just like, man, 
you'll go down this endless path and this spiral because of the fact you're continuing to hold yourself and it's never going to be good enough. We'll always search for perfection. And that's why we always pose a chase after Christ to be more like what he was on this earth. Not like, cause, cause man, we get, we get it mixed up. We mess up because we're human and that's what we got. So I've just tried to learn to, to let God say, look, you're in control. Whether I lie, whether I steal, whether I do, I'm still going, you know, I still, I don't do it. Don't do it intentionally, but at least to know, man, that God knows and he's forgiven. He knows our heart. So that's what's been the biggest thing for me when you ask what, how, how do I get to that place is I can't do it, man. It, it, trying to, trying to hold it up and trying to do all the things for you. You'll go crazy. Trying to take care of everyone, trying to be everything to everybody. You'll go crazy. We're not, we're, we're not capable. How do you deal with self-care then? You know, it, for me, I, you know, for me, I, I have a, a, other, a guy named Ron, Pastor Ron, who I talk to, but it's not about, it's not about judgment. And I, Steve, I have lied. I lived a lie. I lived a lie for a lot part of my life that you say you get to a certain age, you're supposed to be married, you get to a certain age, you're supposed to have kids. You're supposed to say, this is what you're supposed to do. You want that trophy wife, you want those things. And nothing that they have done. Nothing. It's not that they're not a great person. It's not that they treat you well. It's not that they're all those things. But if you're a Pepsi and all of a sudden you you try to become an orange soda, it doesn't work. You'll never become an orange soda because you're a Pepsi. So sometimes we force, we do things out of this. Oh, she fine or this that. Or I'm and 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 that person is not. They did nothing wrong. But because you went into it, because it was something that you felt that you needed to do, it's something you felt. Feeling is an emotion. It's not necessarily the truth. Hmm. And sometimes you will hurt kids. You hurt generations because you hurt your wife. You hurt whether you hurt because you won't tell them the truth. You won't let them know who you really are. And you did something, you know, maybe you want to go camping, but you know what? They wouldn't know. It's all about Louie. And it's never, it's never been about that. And that's, but that's who they've been. They, they, when you got married to them, Hey, I don't want to camp. They would never do those. Some of the things that you or go fish or do the things that you want to do. And you did it because you felt that I needed to fill a void. And we, then when you have the things that we have, the disposable income, we can fix the problem just by throwing money at it. I, I, and you throw it, it's, it's a temporary solution, but and, and it's not necessarily the truth. We have to take a break. And more than anything, we got to pay some bills. Mm-hmm. You got checks. I love cut to it, and I I love it even more when you download us and subscribe. And you can follow us on social media too, Smitty. Where where at? That's at cut to it on Instagram. What about Twitter? At cut to it. Facebook. Cut to it featuring Steve Smith Senior. What about online? And you can follow us at cut to it podcast.com where you can buy merch and you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I got all my questions answered. That's what I'm here for, brother. Cut to it, podcast.com. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, 
who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Coming up on the Cut To It podcast, we've got Tory Smith, two-time Super Bowl champion, eight-year NFL veteran with the Ravens, 49ers, Eagles, Panthers, and he's the founder of the Tory Smith Family Fund with his wife, Chanel. Tory Smith on the Cut To It podcast. Uh, where, where did you grow up? Uh, where are you from? Just like give us the rundown of James Tory Smith. <laughs> he pulled out the government name on you. Man, he put the government <laughs> name out there, man. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Virginia, a small town called Colonial Beach, Virginia. Mm. It's known for two things. The first president of the United States. Okay. From the area, George Washington, and also the general of the South, Robert E. Lee. Wow. Mm. Look at that contrast. So, there isn't really too much going on where I'm from. It's country, <laughs> small town. All my family's from there, and I was raised with my mother. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of seven. Um, I was raised with my mother and my grandmother, and you know we kind of we went through a lot growing up. You know, my mother had me when she was 16 years old, so we really grew up together. A lot of the mistakes she made, you know, I was right there along with her for the ride. Yeah, um, she's she's had times, you know, where she was incarcerated. She was in a very abusive marriage at one point, and. You know, I was right along with her on that journey. So all of the things that we went through uh, really made me who I am. Um, I had to mature and grow up a lot earlier than a lot of my peers. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, I was able to handle any and everything that came my way. You know, I tell people all the time, I knew everything there was about being a parent besides actually working. Sure. And, you know, I know there were some tough moments and things that, you know, most kids really shouldn't go through or experience. But for me now, being an adult, it for sure made me who I am. Your mom got incarcerated when you were when you were young. You know how young were you when she was incarcerated? Yeah, my mom she was in and out of jail um, a lot because of the relationship that she was in. Mm-hmm. You know, they would fight 
all the time and fight all the time. You know, she used to fight when she was younger, you know, and her childhood wasn't the best either. So really it was just kind of generational curses in my family that I, you know, my whole goal was to learn from my personal experience and try to break them as an adult. And I remember when I was in probably second grade or so, it's probably the last time she was incarcerated. I take that back. It was in third grade. And she shot her ex-husband. Wow. She shot him. She said she was aiming for his body and she hit him in the knee. So good thing she can't shoot because, you know, she probably wouldn't be out here right now, but she had had enough. And that was probably one of the longest since she had. And, you know, it wasn't over a year, but she spent some months behind bars for sure. But I just remember being there and visiting her uh, one time. And to be honest, that was probably one of the last times I had actually been in a prison to visit a family member. There, there, I, there, I take that, but there's maybe two other times, but I never liked it. That, that was the last time I saw my mother behind bars, but that wasn't the last time that she was actually behind bars. Right. And I just couldn't put it in my, my mind to, to see her in that condition, you know, to see her behind bars because I know she's a flawed woman, just like I'm a flawed man. But that's my mom. I know, I know her heart. And so it, it was tough for me to see that, which is probably sounds crazy for me saying that because we've, we've been to prisons together, yeah. um, you know, visiting people. And I can do that all day. But to me, it's tough, you know, looking at my own family member, you know, in that situation. And it's something that I, I told her that I, I wouldn't do. And I, I, I haven't to this day. Maybe I'll get over it a little bit. But to me, that's honestly a little bit of trauma there that I've I've tried to stay away from. But, you know, it's like I said, it, it wasn't the last time that it happened, but it was the last time for a long time before she had another incident. You're saying that you're still traumatized. What What are some of the things that you're dealing with, you know, obviously as a man, a father, a husband, you know, and then ultimately a son that you're still trying to get through? Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest things for me as an adult. You know, you're you don't realize things when, when it happens to you. Right. And as men, especially black men, Mm -hmm. you're kind of taught to just suck it up, hold it in, stay to yourself and keep going. You know, I found myself as a youngin, you know, being angry um, about certain things and I didn't really know how to communicate it. And so I understand when I see a kid now that's lashing out, and I'm like, man, like, I see that because I've been in your shoes. Um, as an adult, looking at my kids now, you know, whether it's abuse, whether it's the way I communicate with my wife, like, these are all things that I had to learn. Like, you don't know that you have issues until yeah. you're around someone <laughs> yeah. that lets you know that you're wrong. Yeah. Well, you didn't have a playbook, right? And and experiencing that kind of trauma, it's 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 definitely big. And I think for all three of us, I know you know, Smitty has his own background. I'm, I, my mom has been through and, and is a survivor of domestic violence as well. Mm-hmm. And so it it is a lot. And while I didn't witness my mom, you see the reverberations and how you just deal with her. And so just sharing that of, you know, how you deal with your mom and, and, and the, and the, the trauma that you've dealt with it, that's, man, it's, it's, it's tough because we all are, you know, we all are taught just kind of deal with it, go on. We, we, we process it and we move on, but we really don't process it, do we? No, we, we don't. don't at all. We and that's the toughest thing. Process it. Bro, just thinking about it, mm-hmm. 
going back in some of the stuff that I witnessed as as a as a youngster, watching my mom deal with some of the stuff that she's she dealt with with her her, her husband when he was when he was alive when I was younger. I can I can literally go back and close my eyes and mm-hmm. see those times at like midnight, one a.m. when the when my mom's you know now he's passed away. Husband used to just berate her and talk mm-hmm. down to her, and she was. I remember specifically one time she was he was standing over her, calling her all these kind of names, and she was crouched down. Mm-hmm. And just fearing for her life. And we were living on Cambridge Avenue mm. in a duplex. And I just remember yeah. that even at 41 right now, I can remember that. You can remember the smell. You can remember I, all I those can, things. I can remember yeah. the paint color. Yep. I remember the, I remember the it's like. crazy. The, the, what are they, I don't even, now that I'm, I guess now that I'm, I'm an adult and got a little change in my pocket. Like they don't even they we call them armoires, but they were like TV stands. Oh yeah, yeah and yeah. I can remember the TV stand. Like I can visualize everything. everything. Mm-hmm. And so hearing what you said, I can't imagine. I don't know. I guess for me, is there some shows that I watch today triggering that I have to turn off because it triggers mm-hmm. something in me that stirs something up in me that's just like overwhelming. Yeah. So I'm. I can't imagine. Do you go through that now, Tori? Do you did you know if you watch it? Obviously, how violent shows are. You, you when you see someone, especially a woman, that is maybe pulling the trigger of a of a significant other. Do you go back in time a little bit? Do you have that trauma, or are you just kind of like ah, oh, it's just a TV show? No, it for sure brings you back to that moment. You know, just listening to y'all like. You know, there's a thousand incidents that I can think of where I remember the smell of the car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like you remember every single thing. And that to me isn't something that I realized. Like it stuck with me, not because it was a great memory, but it was a traumatic experience. Yeah. And so when you're watching TV and you see a story comes up or you're looking at a kid that's curled up that feels like they're powerless. You know, like you remember what it was like to be in that situation. You know, when you're watching a man and his tone dealing with the woman, you realize, dang, like that's an issue, you know? And and even in myself, like I try to make sure that even when I'm talking to my wife, that I'm not letting my tone get to a place. I will never physically put my hand, my hands on my wife, but I know that the way my tone could be, could be just as dangerous mm-hmm. as putting my hands on my wife. Right. And so that's that's important for me to know, but I come from a family where communication between my mother and my grandmother was hostile. You know, my mother in the way we communicated at times, like she talked to us because of her own pain was hostile. Mm-hmm. And so you had to learn like, if that's all you know, you think that's it's, just it's how normal. people communicate. You, or you think Especially it's when normal. they're upset, right? Yeah, it's, and it's, it's crazy what my we wife introduced me to the fact that no, like you're not about to talk to me like that. Just think I'm okay, <laughs> right? Like and so, there's things that I seriously like. My wife, like people talk about being woke now about social issues. Like my wife made me woke and aware of my own issues that I haven't dealt with or that I needed to deal with. How are you dealing with those right now? 
Man, I've I've had to talk to counselors in the past. I've had to talk to my peers. I've had to talk to Steve Smith. I've had to talk to Anquan Bolden. You know, I've had to talk to some of my receiver coaches, Jim Hostler, Bobby Ingram. Yeah. You know, like there are some some great men. Um that I've, I've had the Adam Henry, you know, he's down there in Dallas right now to receive coach yeah. for the Cowboys. Like these are men that I was able to talk to about real issues, but guess what? They all had experiences too. Yeah. Which is something that to me and being in an environment where, like I said, as young black men and even mental health in the black community in general, mm-hmm. it's like a stigma. Yeah. Like it's negative to go get help. Yep. The reality of it is like, <laughs> No one, if you continue to hold all of this stuff in, like why, you're why never gonna think, be able to heal and move on. Why do you think it's, it's such a big stigma? And obviously it, in the black community, and mm-hmm. the reason I say the black community is because you're listening to Tory Smith and Cut To It, and this is an audio podcast and we're black. Yep. So that's why News we're flash. saying black men, because I don't know what it's like to not be a black man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also don't act like I know what it's like to be a non-black man. And mm-hmm. so there, there is, especially right now in this climate, mm-hmm. that there is a little bit of times people are like, well, why does it always have to be black? You know, or why does it have to be race? You know, sometimes race is just used as a, you know, as a measuring stick mm-hmm. or also just to to paint a picture of mm-hmm. what, people experience like I mean I you know I hate to say it this way but a a short guy has no idea what it's like to deal with being a seven foot tall guy trying to get into a small car like there are things that you have to deal with that other people don't have to deal with so that's why I say as a black man or black men why is mental health such a stigma in a community where when you really think about it, when you just strip away all the everything, bro, you got to imagine Tori, what you've dealt with as a young man, Mm -hmm. watching your mother shoot her husband, Mm -hmm. me watching my mom get beat by her husband, Mm -hmm. Gerard watching his mom get beat by her husband. And to say, that this doesn't have an impact on you, you don't see the world a little bit with apprehension, man, you got to be blanking kidding me. It, 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 it's what we have experienced as young men. There's some people are walking in that are walking around have never experienced that. Yeah. We'll never experience it. And thankfully, my kids will never experience having to watch me put my hands on my wife. The only thing I put my hands on is a gentle hand mm-hmm. on my wife. But you know what I'm saying? But <laughs> no, it just I, I, it's 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 experiences, man. Yeah. And, and I think what what all of us are saying is that we're just so often taught as black men, and maybe it's men in general, yeah, but our experiences men. are as black men, we're taught suck it up. Don't say nothing. Don't yeah. tell the family secrets. We ain't gonna talk about mm. Uncle Uncle Earl down the street and, and what he's done, right? Like we just we we always and Tori elaborate on it. We just always keep it within. We keep all our family business within the family. That's just, you it just seems to be dirty how laundry. Yeah, you don't air your dirty laundry. It's about, to me, and I think that's trauma in itself. Um, one thing that in the black community that we've struggled with, specifically along the lines of mental health, is that it's like, all right, everyone around you is dealing with it, right? 
and it's that's like generalizing it. But what people are saying is like, okay, Uncle Uncle Earl was dealing with it. You know, you you could talk to your peers. There's some people dealing with the exact same things, but it's right. like you want to protect mm. the people in your home still, in yeah. spite of their flaws. You know, and and we are consistently told and taught as men to toughen. Like it's about mm-hmm. being masculine and strong. Like you're weak if you have to reach out and you can't control what your thoughts are in your mind. You know, and in other yeah. communities, you know, it's important to speak of. Like I know people who are. You know, some of my white friends from high school who were dealing with issues with sports mm-hmm. and dealing with losing. And it was okay for them. And their parents were willing to have them reach out to a counselor or to a therapist. In the black community, oh, you talking to the crazy folks. Yeah. Oh, you going you gotta go to the crazy house. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, you kind of get judged for wanting to reach out to get help. So that's why it's important for men like us to speak out about it because people are dealing with issues. A lot of the issues we see now, whether it's crime, really specifically talking about crime, when you see it, you know, I see the kid who witnessed abuse, who had no guidance, who couldn't trust people like I couldn't trust people. Absolutely. Because the people who are responsible for providing for you are putting you in environments that you know as a child you shouldn't even be in. Like, Mm -hmm. you're going to have some trust issues. Yep. You know, you may follow the wrong crowd because of that. And that's not to make excuse for everyone's issues, but I understand. Yeah. And so to me, like, that's a, a big stigma that we had to continue to talk about because, again, we all have these problems. And I would have never known Steve had these problems if I didn't talk to Steve about it. Yeah. Yep. Right. I didn't I wouldn't know if G had it. We didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to continue that conversation man, and to be better and to, and to break that because we have our issues dealing with your trauma mm-hmm. and negative experiences, you can't do it alone. I think it's about that time. Just uh, take a little breather. Cut to it. Cut to it. Let's get down to it. Cut to it. Hey, Gerard, where did you get that T-shirt? You mean this thing? Oh, yes. I got it from CutToItPodcast.com where we have exclusive merchandise. Shout out to our guys at 704 Shop. But yeah, you can go on, buy you a T-shirt, subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides. Loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot... And every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? 
Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Our guest today is Malcolm Jenkins. He's in his 10th year in the NFL. He's a three-time Pro Bowler. He's a Super Bowl winner with two different teams, the Saints and the Eagles, and he's just made a return back to the New Orleans Saints. I think what's most impressive is he is a contributor now to CNN. He's also the founder of the Players Coalition and the Malcolm Jenkins Foundation. Where did you grow up? So I was I was born in uh, East Orange, New Jersey. It's right next to Newark, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I lived there for till I was probably in the uh, third grade, and then I moved to uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, which is actually where my dad's from, uh, maybe like forty five minutes away. But my whole family uh, is is still in Jersey. The majority of them are in Newark and East Orange. How would your mom or dad describe young Malcolm? as a kid growing up in East Orange, New Jersey? Uh, they say I was a good kid. Like they, they laughed, they, you know, I'm the oldest of three boys. And so, uh, and I got plenty of cousins, you know, we, we got a lot of us in my generation of the family. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I was a good kid, but you could, as, as you can imagine with all of these boys, you know, we get in trouble a lot, but they would say I was the smart one who knew how, how to not to get a whooping. So while everybody <laughs> else, you know, when you kids, you don't know how to stop having fun. Like, right before you get to that point where you you about to get the, the attention of your parents, mm-hmm. I'll be the one. I'll be right, right in lockstep with everybody until I'm like, ah, y'all getting a little too loud. And I'll sit down. And by the time the adults come in the room, I'm the only one, you know, chilling. And everybody else is going crazy. They get a whooping, and I'll just be laughing. I was a smart one, for sure. You had three generations of, of Jenkins in the same household growing up. Wow. Yep. What was that? You three get, generations. You don't see that many generations in that. one house at I one know. time. So that's pretty cool. Like, break that down for us. Yeah, so in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, uh, you know, my grandmother owned uh, the house that my dad grew up in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he went to North Carolina A&T uh, when he got out. Him and my mom met there. Uh, we lived in, you know, up in North Jersey. So East Orange, Newark, Irvington. We bounced around a little bit. Uh, but once we got back to Piscataway, we moved back into that to that house. So my grandmother was still living there um, and, and my, my uncle. So they were downstairs and then upstairs was me, my two brothers and then my parents. So you really had, you know, three generations between my grandfather, my grandmother, uh, my father and then, you know, his sons. Yeah, till, till my grandmother retired and she moved to Virginia, mm-hmm. sold the house to my, to my dad because she ain't given no discounts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, and, you know, and they're still there. You went to a all-black elementary school, I believe, yep. from pre-K to about third grade. 
I, I didn't I really didn't realize how different my experience was until recently as an adult. Like as people have been kind of having these conversations about, you know, when did they kind of notice that they were black? And for me, when I started school, it was uh, called Chad School uh, in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, my aunt was actually one of the first, she was in the uh, inaugural kind of the first class uh, of that school. And all of the teachers, majority of students uh, were black and it's a private school. And so because it was private, they, you know, you get hit with a ruler, uh, you know, everybody, you, we had to address each other and our teachers as uh, sister and brother. We sung Lift Every Voice every single day. Uh, every Friday was a we had a uh, play, you know, one of the classes would do uh, a black history kind of uh, play and tell different stories throughout history uh, every single Friday. And you had pre-K all the way to 12th grade. And so it really created a sense of community and pride in your blackness, your heritage, your uh, history. And then once I got to the third grade, I moved to Piscataway, went to public school, and it wasn't until then that I realized, you know, how different, you know, though the the curriculum was, uh, the traditions, and and you know, really, kind of the blackness was nowhere to really to be found. Mm -hmm. What it did prepare me though was when I was in those environments, I was very very comfortable with who I was, my heritage, and my family, and all of those things. Where I think it's been a, when I've talked to people, it's been like the opposite. You know, they didn't really uh, recognize, you know, they, they had to learn later in life, like how to be proud about who they were because they saw immediately when they went to school that they were different. Um, and I've had a different experience. And so like, it's one thing I've, I've been talking about a lot recently uh, because we need more of those uh, types of spaces where, you know, I'm, you know, not to jump off on a tangent, but I'm talking to a lot of black educators and, less i think it's like two percent of all educators are uh black men and so to go you know a lot of us will go through preschool all the way to high school and not have a black man at the front of the uh, in your classroom yeah and what that does is like you you never see yourself in that as a teacher you never see yourself as a leader you can you can go your whole you know time through school and never have a black principal um, and so you don't have these examples that are in front of you that tells you you can be a leader, that you're smart, that you can teach, that you can, you know, do all of these things. You see white people in those spots. And for white kids, they never see a black person in those spots either. And so without being, you know, overt or anything, these are kind of the messages that kids take in. And, you know, like I said, I didn't even really notice the difference until you know, much later as an adult when I'm talking to people with different backgrounds. But there's, it's no coincidence that I still have a lot of friends that went to Chad School with me. Uh, and we're all very like-minded when it comes to, you know, what we're what our business interests are, what, what we uh, are fighting for, how we raise our kids, our pride in kind of our heritage. And it's no surprise that it started, you know, at such a young age. I mean, I can, as you were talking, Malcolm, I'm I'm thinking back and I didn't have a black male teacher until I was in the eighth grade and he was our defensive backs coach. Mm -hmm. and, and that was, that was literally it. So it's, it's profound for you to bring that up because it's one thing to hear the statistic. It's another thing to see it in, in your life. And you jumped into a lot of the things I think we wanted to talk about in terms of some of the work that you're doing today. And, and we'll talk about a lot of that, but 
it, it, it's almost as if a lot of those things were planted in you as a child, whether it be from your family or being at that school. Why do you think that was important to you? Why do you think it's played a part into who you are today? Well, I think my parents were very intentional, you know, about it. And they never really taught me, or at least I couldn't really remember any, you know, real specific lessons about being black, but they definitely created an environment in which I always like felt comfortable in it and always was around it and and learning things. Um, But also my dad did a a really good job of um, exposing me to other cultures as well. Um, you know, we, we go visit my grandmother in uh, Virginia and we stop at different places, historical markers, and you talk about the Battle of Gettysburg and all of these different things. Um, you know, and as a kid, sometimes these lessons, you, you, they're boring and you don't think you understand them until you become an adult. And then all of these things, you know, are just ingrained in, in who you are. And so I think for me now as a, as a parent, I'm trying to you know, replicate some of those same lessons that, that my parents, um, you know, taught me. And, and, and not just about, again, you know, your own blackness and their uh, heritage and history, but others as well. I also understand that those lessons were, I was never taught those lessons outside of Chad school in my home. Mm. And so <laughs> I don't want my kids, you know, to go through these school systems and never learn about their own history, never learn about, uh, you know, their, their heritage, where they come from, what they've been through, who they are as a, you know, as people and who they, who, what their, what their lineage is, what they're cut from. Um, because I know that the world's not going to tell them. And right. so I think it's, uh, it's important, you know, for me, that's, it, it becomes really important. And I also believe that it's important for all of us to understand it. Cause I know if I'm not getting it, that means also my white counterpart, my teammates, whoever, they didn't get it either. And so it's no surprise where we are right now as a country where we're having to have these, you know, really basic conversations about American history and how we got to where we are, because we just haven't even learned half of, you know, uh, the, the history. Yeah, there's, there's such a gap in the, in, in the system. Huge gap. Yep. As you go through your experiences as, uh, at Chad School as a private black school I in the other hand grew up in Los Angeles and I remember um, going to kindergarten in Los Angeles Unified School District and walking to school and in the first grade they bust us out growing up in LA and knowing and seeing the pictures of LA you know traffic Mm -hmm. is blank right It's, (laughs) it's a beast so they sent us out to the valley so at the time when they sent us out of the valley, I was living on 79th and Avalon, which is literally across the street from, like, uh, from Fremont High School. And how I got my passion for ball mm-hmm. was on Friday nights when we stayed in our apartments. That was like Fridays. I loved it because I got to watch football yeah. and I got to eat a TV dinner. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And being poor, TV dinner, you know, like that's a treat. That's a treat. Yeah. And you yeah, I yeah. need to eat everything. Mm-hmm. My mom put that TV dinner on a bucket. And on that bucket, I would watch them play ball. And I always dreamed about playing ball. Wow. But what was crazy is as you were talking, Malcolm, I remember 
us getting bust to, I'm using air quotes because nobody can see me, to the white school. Mm-hmm. And it was a, and I hate to say it this way, but it was a yellow bus full of people of color. And we go out to this school. And I don't know why I remember this. It was this girl named Elizabeth that I thought was really cute, but she didn't want no parts of me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, I just remember in the first grade, as Michael was talking, we got bused and we spent like an hour on the bus each way to go to school. And we did that for the school year. And the next year, my mom was like, nah, that ain't happening. Mm-hmm. You're you going back to the school that you was going on. Because she had to literally, I would get out of school. You know, you got to school 215. Man, we weren't getting back home till like 4 or 5 o'clock. Wow. And I just remember that, I hate to say it this way, but what, what, what were they doing? They were getting us out of the hood mm-hmm. to get a better education right. in the valley. Mm-hmm. Now as an adult, I look at it. You don't need to bus us to give us a better education. Just give us better education. Bring it to us. Bring it to right. not even bring it to us. Bring it to that area. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, bring you it. Know? Bring it to where the people are. Yes. Yeah. And and it's just interesting that you say that, and that's why I use the word disadvantage because mm-hmm. all the years that we played against each other, now doing this podcast, I get the, I get the honest. I, honestly, I get to learn the individuals mm-hmm. and it's really cool to learn the individuals because you get to see the layers of them versus in football. You're just playing ball. You're going at each other. You, you, you cursing, you're spitting, you, you, right. you, you're in the heat of battle. You don't have time. One to break bread and just to conversate, to dialogue. And so this is really giving me a great perspective of Malcolm Jenkins because I don't. I didn't really have this perspective when I'm running a whatever route I'm going against you and your coverage, and right. we're not discussing. Hey, man, you know, I went to I went to all black uh, private school. Bang, bang. Let me, you know, he ain't, <laughs> ain't exactly top of mind. Right, 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 right. It's not 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 quite the priority at that moment. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> also, learn when you, you you went to high school just to kind of move it along. But you went to high school. You played DB and wide receiver. How did you f- pick playing DB versus wide receiver? I think uh, it had to be my junior year. I had, uh, I think I had seven touchdowns on offense, but I had like five drops that could have been touchdowns, but I had eight picks. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, I could catch the ball on defense, but couldn't catch it on offense. So I figured real quick, I was a DB. <laughs> but uh <laughs> The way I got my scholarship as well was um, after my – this had to be – yeah, after my junior season, we – my aunt moved to Westerville, Ohio, and uh, my mom wanted to go visit her sister. So uh, for two weeks, we, we went up there, and my parents paid to put me uh, and my brother uh, at Ohio State's football camp that they do every year. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that recruits – don't pay to go to these camps. Uh, and obviously I was not a recruit. So my parents paid the full $400 or whatever it was uh, for each of us to stay on campus for four days. And at that uh, camp, I registered to be, you know, a corner. And uh, one of the days they were doing one-on-ones and, uh, you know, I started in kind of the line. They had like four or five different lines. I started in one where the receivers were kind of scrubs and, 
I dumped, locked everybody up in that line, then I moved to the next one. Did the same thing, same thing. And I noticed that, like, all the way to the end of the field, there was one particular line where all of the coaches were at. Jim Trussell was over there. Mel Tucker was the D coordinator at the time. He was there, uh, a couple other people. So eventually I made myself to that line, and I realized, like, okay, these receivers are different. You know, these – and I, had, I didn't even know who they were. I didn't recognize them from the camp. But these were all of their recruits and guys that were actually coming in on scholarship oh. uh, from all over Ohio. And so I just, you know, I jump in line. I'm competing. You know, if, if a DB is acting nervous to go against somebody else, I cut him in line. I go two, three times in a row. And eventually Mel Tucker just pulled me to the side. And he's like, you know, like, who are you? What's your name? You know, he's giving me little techniques and I'm, I'm applying them and I'm just competing, competing, competing. And he took me into the, the back room and he said, uh, we, he turns on some, he tries to find my, my tape and he's like, you might be the best corner in the, in, in the country. Hmm. And at that point I was a one-star, you know, recruit. My rival's profile was trash. And so he kind of caught me off guard when he said that. But, you know, we kept talking, watching some tape and he gave me some, some tips and uh, we left. I spent the rest of, you know, a couple of weeks in Ohio. When I got back, I had a scholarship. And so for me, that was when I was like, okay, DB is, is, is clearly, you know, what my focus is going to be. You mentioned that you were lightly recruited and, you know, your, your rival's profile wasn't what you wanted to be, but you end up finishing your career at Ohio State, three-time first team, all Big Ten. You won the Jim Thorpe Award for being the best DB. I want to ask you this question and make it a little bit more timely to write to right now. What do you think about the challenges that college students, student-athletes are going to face today given COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everybody's trying to adjust. And I, I think, you know, for one, it's, it's just the safety of even dealing with the, the, the virus. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that is so many unknowns, especially at college athletes. You know, they're bringing, they're bringing them back early just to do workouts. And you're getting, you know, all of these co uh, college students and college athletes, you know, exposed to the virus. Uh, the NCAA didn't put in, you know, a standard protocol for everybody. So they're allowing the schools to kind of do their own thing. Um, and unfortunately, you saw a lot of student athletes get sick. Um, but then I think with just any college student put the sports down, I think everybody's trying to understand, you know, how do I continue to get my education, but also stay safe? You know, are they going to open schools? Is it going to be a virtual, you know, experience? I think everybody's trying to figure out um, how to adjust, but mainly how to stay engaged. You don't want to lose, you know, their attention, especially on the academics. Let's talk um, ball. Let's talk ball. And so mm -hmm. played against you a number of times. Yep. <laughs> and I remember I think an article came out um, that you had stated playing against me. One play was good. The next play was bad. <laughs> <laughs> You definitely schizophrenic, bro. <laughs> like, so, like, am go I? Ahead. Let me I'm be a, quiet. Go ahead, do talk. A, you tell me. Trash please talker, expound. Right? Yes, please expound on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a, I'm a trash talker. Like, and I like to get in people's minds because I'm like, if I can get you mad at me and more worried about the little stuff I'm doing, I have you you're not worried about your route. You're not worried about nothing. I got you. But I learned real quick when it came to Steve. Like, uh, for one. Don't piss him off because he plays better when he gets mad. Two, don't believe him when he's being a nice guy. Because I've seen this <laughs> oh, guy. Oh, bait switch move. <laughs> I've seen this guy literally after one play, 
He's talking to you, man, how you doing, man? It's crazy, you know, laughing, make a joke. Good job, you know, pat you on the back. And the very next play, wow. he's got his hands around your throat. Right? <laughs> and no exaggeration, this is literal. And so I was like, you know, I, I tell young guys, we get ready to play the Panthers, I'm like, I'm like, look, if Steve out there talking to you nice, don't believe it. Like, you keep your guard up, because he will choke you out. <laughs> That's a dirtbag, bro. But the thing is, here's the thing. I don't even know what to say to like try to help my case right no, now. Yeah. Like if right now, if if my defense team put Malcolm Jenkins on the stand, uh-huh. my ass is going to jail. <laughs> oh, hey, now that you remember, all the uh, evidence when, is stacked against yeah. your ass. Yeah. When we did a, uh, when you was uh, in Baltimore, we did that joint practice. I was with Eagles. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I remember walking up, we were getting ready to do the one-on-ones. I was hot. Okay, I got and you, it. And you was on the knee. And uh, I just, I already, like, I'm like, we got joint practices. I already know what's, what this is about to be. And so I walk up. I don't, I don't say nothing. I just kind of walk past. And he's like, hey, Jim. I turn around. He's like, we good? I said, we straight. So all right. You get your guys, and I got mine. I'm like, all right. Like, here we go. <laughs> then one of my, one of them young boys, I ain't going to repeat what you said to him, but. He 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 didn't uh, get the memo about who Steve Smith was. He had to learn the hard way. But uh, yeah, man, it's it's always always a lot of respect, man. You know, because it's it's like that on the field. But yeah, you know, I think I think uh, that's what made you a great player, man. That's you know, I had a lot of. I used to enjoy those battles. I enjoyed those battles with you as well, because you were one of those guys I always had to know where he was on the field. Mm. He was smart. He was intelligent. And Malcolm, help me out with this one, too, because we, we've had the opportunity to talk to some basketball players. Mm-hmm. We, we talk to a lot of different people. And I'm always intrigued with whatever that sport is, IQ. Mm-hmm. Brother, would you say with 80 guys, one, not all of them are the best of the best that everybody claims? Not at all. Okay. And football IQ. You can have some dudes that literally are extremely intelligent outside of football. I was going to say off the field. Off the field. Okay. And dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> to the X's and O's. Right. Yep. And it's like they have no either, or they're really smart on the football field, a high football IQ. And, dude, some of the dumbest dumb, stuff dumb as a known to mankind <laughs> on a – Off the field. Off the field. Yeah. Like, what what would you say over the years that you've played that makes a a DB really good? I think uh, for me, you know, and and I think what guys sometimes get confused is I've seen guys with phenomenal athletic ability, like could get in and out of breaks better than anybody I've seen, got ball skills, you know, instincts, whatever, but – can't understand the simple concepts of defense. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I don't think I'm the fastest. I ain't strongest, ain't the, ain't the uh, you know, can't jump the highest. But I know leverage. You know, mm-hmm. I know, okay, if I got this coverage, all of my help is inside, I'm going to stay outside. If you beat me, you know, if you're going to beat me anywhere, you're going to beat me away from my leverage, I'll tackle you and we'll play the next down. You know, just simple concepts like that on how to put yourself in the best position. And you've seen – you know, guys who aren't the fastest, you know, but can cover everything and, and end up being the top of the game. And so I think, you know, 
the ones who last and have really long careers learn to adjust their game. And most of it, it comes with, you know, what's between their ears. You went from corner to safety. So you've got to be able to play the game from a cerebral level almost as well. Yeah. And, and man, that's why, and I enjoyed the, you know, the move. And I think that's what makes, what really I was able to build my career on that, right? Being able to have play corner, you know, on all levels and, and have that skill set to be able to just line up and play man to man, but have enough, you know, IQ to, to be able to transition to the safety position, you know, and control, you know, be air traffic control, get guys lined up, yeah. understand what's coming and, and be able to put myself really on any spot on the defense and actually be able to ha do it well. Um, you know, so that versatility, I think is what is the unique part about my game. It's not, you know, my physical attributes or anything like that. It's my ability to understand the game um, and constantly kind of build on what I know, but uh, the, the ability to also be versatile, you know, and, and be able to play all of these different spots because I don't look at defenses by position. So I don't want to just know what the corners are doing. I don't want to just know what the nickel or the safety is doing. I just like put everybody as an X and what is this concept of the defense? How does this work? So if at any point in time, I can switch my position and know what to do. If you are playing a guy like Malcolm and you understand what he's doing and how he looks at your concepts and look at the route and look at splits and formations and motions and cadence, I would come in and if I saw Malcolm so seeing something that he knew was a tendency, I would line up, watch him, then I would tendency break by widening or cutting my split down and it would screw the whole defense up wow. because that's not what you're supposed to do. And that's the thing I love about defensive players. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, they'll be like, you ain't supposed to run that. I'm like, bro, how you going to tell me I can't run that? That's not what we've seen on film. That, the game is not always about what you see on film. Sometimes read, you got to – Read and react. Yes, but defensive players – I hate to say it this way. Defensive players are cheaters. They, gotta be. Y'all know where y'all running. We you don't. know. That's what I was gonna say. You have a competitive advantage because you have. You know the play. You got a defensive player has to read and react. Right. Shut up. Jerome. Okay. My bad. All right. My, my We're moving bad. on. We mo <laughs> the last football question. Then we're gonna really get into all the things that you're doing. When you were drafted in 2009, what did Malcolm Jenkins want to do in the league? You know, you know, I think, honestly, I, I think I put too much pressure on myself uh, as a first-round draft pick. You know, uh, I want to – you know, everybody has these goals. I want to be a Hall of Fame player. I want to make Pro Bowls and all these different things. Um, and I remember looking around at uh, other guys. I think it was uh, Vontae Davis was the next corner who got drafted after me. He was starting in Miami. Uh, a couple other DBs, you know, that were rookies or were playing. I'm looking at, you know, who the tops in the game were, you know, the Darrell Reverses and, and those guys. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm, I think my first six games, I was playing special teams. And so I remember getting, you know, kind of, you know, sidetracked by looking at everybody else, comparing myself that I was like, man, I'm falling short. You know, I'm feeling like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bust. And it wasn't until I started to really focus on maybe like my second, third year in the league when I started to focus on what made me the player I am that I actually 
begin to even, you know, be able to visualize kind of who I wanted to be as a player. Like, what, what do I want my career to look like? But I think I started out with the generic, yeah, I want to be a, a Hall of Famer. I want to be, you know, I want to make a Pro Bowl every year and X, Y, and Z. Um, but I think those started to change as, as I got better. And so for me, I'm like, I want to obviously want to be recognized as one of the best to play the game. Everybody who lines up and puts on some cleats should have that idea. But I want it to be more about the way I played the game than just, you know, making just just being a name that, you know, is constantly in the Pro Bowls. Once you start really recognizing too, a lot of the stuff is a popularity contest. It's like, but, but what are people saying to you after the game? Do you have the respect of your opponents? Do you have the respect of your teammates? Uh, are coaches noticing, you know, the value you bring to the game? Are you changing the game in any way? Are you making it better? Changing how the position is played? Those are the things that, the types of impacts that, you know, I started to focus on and, and really just honing in on what I do best. You are a unique person. You are well worth it. You are competent. And most of all, you're lovable. I'm Steve Smith Sr. I'm Gerard Littlejohn. And this is Cut To It. Cut To It with Steve Smith Sr. That is me. Is a production of Cut To It LLC, Balto Creative Media, The Black Effect, and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From Cut To It, executive producer Steve Smith Sr., co-host Gerard Littlejohn, talent and booking manager Joe Fushi, social media team Wesley Robinson and John Show. From Balto Creative Media, Cut To It is produced by Brian Baltashevich and Meredith Carter with production assistance by Alex Lebrecht, production coordinator Taylor Robinson. Theme music by Alex Johnson, lyrics and vocals by Anthony Hamilton. You ain't heard about it, then we're about to let you know. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. 
Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR. 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. 